From Cleveland, Ohio, this is the Cleveland Stage Podcast, brought to you by Fog Properties. Flexible spaces, all the right places. Visit FOGG.com for information. And now, your hosts, Tyler Whitten and Ian Wolfgang Hins. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Cleveland Stage Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tyler Whitten, along with my co-host, Ian Hens. And we're back with the exciting new season of the Cleveland Stage Podcast. That's right. That's right. The 2018-2019 theater season as we get underway. That's right. Here at Ensemble, the future is bright is the title of the season. Yeah. It feels like just yesterday we were closing out our previous season. Angels in America 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> we nailed it. <laughs> it was great. And speaking of Angels in America 2, we have one of the stars the of that show. The st- one of the stars of the whole season, really. You opened up the season <laughs> with Well, and then, of course, you came on strong with Angels in America midway through the season, and then closed out the season strong right. with Angels in America Part 2. All seasons, turn, turn, turn. That's right. That's right. We have Craig, Joseph. Craig Joseph, the incredible actor who uh, lives really far away, but still comes to Cleveland Heights to share his his talents. To play. Craig's in uh, a show you're directing, Tyler. Wow. Alabama Story by Kenneth Jones. It's a, an Ohio premiere, a new play. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's important. Uh, and and uh, so what's, what's this about? What's this play about? Well, uh, <laughs> it's based on a true story. And it is, uh, so, so it, there was a children's book in the 1950s, late 1950s, called uh, The Rabbit's Wedding, mm-hmm. which was written by Garth Williams, who was the illustrator of some books by E.B. White and Laura Ingalls Wilder as well, Charlotte uh-huh. Webb. And House you're playing Garth. I play him. Yep. Right. And uh, when this book came out, it was printed in black and white. And in the book, these two rabbits get married. One of them is black and one of them is white. And this sort of uh, kind of caught the caught the attention and raised the ire of a, a senator in Alabama who thought that the book was about race mixing and interracial marriages. And so he kind of campaigned pretty loud and pretty hard to get it taken off the shelves of the Alabama Public Library Service. So the, the book is about the battle between him and uh, a woman librarian who's the head of the Alabama Library Service. And there's also sort of a, a subset story uh, about a, a white woman and a black man who grew up together in the South and they are reconnecting uh, years later to kind of replay their relationship and sort of looks at a couple of different kind of conflicts that were going on at the time. Yeah, and I think what's uh, interesting about the play is that, uh, first of all, it takes place uh, right in Montgomery, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which was the cradle of the civil rights movement. It's where Dr. King was. Uh, it's where the Rosa Parks and the, and the bus boycott. Mm-hmm. And this really, the true story that really happened in 1959, and the whole story itself, I think, took throughout the entire year. Uh, and here you have uh, this really interesting aspect of the civil rights movement that you don't hear about too often, uh, and that is the censorship. And that is how we try, or how other folks try to control uh, the information that we were being given mm-hmm. in order to control movement that they had going on right in the with, and then, you know we don't bring up and they they mention Dr. King in the play they they mention uh, the Empire Theater which was the bus stop where Rosa Parks did not move her seat, uh, and they mention things like that they mention Rosa Parks of course uh, but they don't play a vital role in the story they're sort of the mm-hmm. backdrop, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's one of the really great parts about the play and that adds this like human element to it mm-hmm. uh, to this thing that we all think about as a, a, a large which it was it was a huge movement mm-hmm. so what is the what is the main uh, thrust of the story what is it that 
you know, we're, we're looking at? Is it censorship? Is it civil rights? Is it both? I think it's, I mean, it's clearly both. Uh, but, you know, I think it's more about the censorship. Mm-hmm. I think it's more, uh, you know, the library course is the focus. Uh, Miss Emily Reed uh, is the is the focus. It was, she was her obituary in two thousand was the inspiration for Kenneth Jones, who wrote the play. Oh, wow. uh, that's when he first got the the germ to write it. Um, but yeah, I think primarily it's about the censorship aspect of the civil rights movement. However, we still have, as Craig said, the story about the couple, mm-hmm. and that sort of adds uh, a little a little color, if you will, and a little flavor uh, to the story and, and provides uh, the, the personal and human aspect of what was going on uh, between, um, you know, in the civil rights movement. Well, and I think related to, to censorship, the play is also about the powers, the, the power that stories have, the power mm-hmm. of storytelling mm-hmm. and what happens when you tell a story and who's, who's, who's controlling the telling mm-hmm. of the story and how does retelling the story change your understanding of the story? You know, mm-hmm. so many of the characters are unpacking their past mm-hmm. and sort of what happened. So w- one of the things that I like about it, you know, like Tyler said, there are all these actual historical references, but there are plenty of plays and movies right now that are biopics about sure. the civil rights movement. This one has this really cool storytelling fairy tale almost aspect to mm-hmm. it. So it goes from being just sort of straight realism to almost more magical realism. Yeah. I guess mm-hmm. kind of thing and, sure. and sort of elevates it to to a different to a different thing and I don't think we hide from that in our production I think we we even play to it uh, this idea I think you think it was even Craig who brought it up even in our first rehearsal where it was like we're almost a pop-up book mm-hmm. right where we open the pages in the very top and everything comes kind of comes to life mm-hmm. uh, you know we're not hiding from the fact that for example Craig as Garth is playing uh, multiple characters in the play mm-hmm. um and, you know, I don't think uh, the play, I think the play encourages that. I think the sure. play, you know, wants every aspect of a story to be told. One of the things we talked about in rehearsals was uh, the many different roles that books play mm-hmm. and the, 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 even the different identities that books have in the play. You know, and they're not just physical things. They can be many different things. They can be gifts. They can mm-hmm. be uh, heritage. You know, they can be legacy, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and I think, you know, we're playing, definitely using those elements in our production. And I think, too, the, all of the characters in the play are, are very simple. And I don't want to say that in a reductive way. They're mm-hmm. not caricatures, but they're simple yeah. in the way that they're kind of almost archetypes. Yeah. They stand in for lots of universal things, which feels like a children's book. It feels like mm-hmm. uh, uh, a, a story with a moral or a fable yeah. of some sort of thing. Like, there's clearly the villain there's clearly the champion and hero there's clearly the people Mm. who are the young lovers working out their past and rather than that making the story small it Mm. makes the story kind of i think more universal for Mm -hmm. for all of us the way that it would be if you're reading a kid's book so who would who's the villain in this story well i i would say that the villain the story is senator higgins okay that he's he's the senator who's trying to get the book banned um, and then, of course, the hero would be the, the Miss, Miss Emily Reed and her, her kind of squire is uh, Sir Thomas Franklin. Sure. It's almost like professional wrestling. Right? <laughs> like Higgins is the heel. Well, what makes Higgins, what makes Higgins the bad guy? That's what I'm trying to get. Yeah, I mean, him? he represents, and it's funny how this play 
uh, is still relatable even today. In fact, even more so. I think we picked a really good time to do this play because uh, I think there's a lot of parallels between what's going on now, mm-hmm. uh, especially even this week, even <laughs> today, when you know we had the president of the nation complaining about sure. googling himself and complaining about the results. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're 14 all of a sudden, and uh, you know, I think Higgins represents the establishment who is afraid of change and who's mm-hmm. afraid of moving forward and who wants to keep everything. We, a lot of the times we talk about in the play, like one of the moments, like who in the play or who in each scene and moment is trying to hold on to the past and who is trying to move forward. And Higgins definitely represents those moments of holding on to the past. Fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fear of the new, fear of the mm-hmm. change, fear of mm-hmm. different, fear of difference, fear mm-hmm. of the other, things mm-hmm. like that. But, but the thing that's great is... I think even even though he's quote unquote the villain of the piece, again, like fairy tales or like Shakespearean plays, he's still included in the ending. Yeah. Like he doesn't get there's nobody who's just like, you're the villain, you're punished, you're excluded yeah, yeah, from yeah. the story. And I think I think that's a nice aspect to it too, that that the play ties things up neater than they are in real life in mm-hmm. some respects, but it's sort of wish fulfillment, I think, yeah. for us as an as an audience sometimes. What makes what makes Emily's character, the librarian's character, the 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 hero or the protagonist? You know, in a, a lot of ways, she's she's the outside of the of the of this world that like Higgins rules, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, both literally and figuratively. I mean, she's not from Alabama, which is a point that he brings up quite a bit. Um, so she's bringing in other cultures, if you will, Mm -hmm. as they talk about in the play. Uh, You know, she's the one who is introducing this idea, or not even shying away from the idea that that what this book represents for Higgins, right? Um, And I think that's a big thing in the play. I mean, I think she... There's a lot of redemption in the play. There's a lot of forgiveness, especially at the end, as Craig says, in in both major storylines. But I think, you know, from the very beginning, she's the one that we're watching... We're watching her sort of before the book mm-hmm. is introduced, mm-hmm. and we're watching her after the the book is introduced. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of this. Now I'm going to keep going on this a little bit. It, it's the play is also sort of a western, so because you have this outsider who who rides into town, mm-hmm. sees the powers that be and the status quo not being well, changes them, and then because of that has to ride off yeah. into the distance afterward. Can't stay there and be part of the right. the new society that she's helped form. <laughs> Does she actively change it though? She's uh, does she actively change it? That's a good question. We've talked about this a few times uh, in our rehearsal process, and uh, you know she doesn't necessarily grab Higgins by the collar and say you must change or anything like that. But I think her her sticking to her moral ground and her standing up to Higgins and not backing down uh, may not have a direct effect mm-hmm. on what happens near the end of the play. But it certainly allows an opportunity for the audience to uh, see what's good mm-hmm. and see how that can be and how that can have ch- reciprocal change around her, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that includes her librarian assistant, Thomas, mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and the, the steps that he takes towards a life that he wants because mm-hmm. he watched how she reacted and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, she doesn't have the moments like the gunfighter in the Western right. where she squares off and like, you know, <laughs> right. shoots him down. Right, right, right. Uh, but I think she, yeah, I think she, she, def- she definitely represents the change. But by standing up for what she believes in. Yeah. And, and, and this 
particular instance, it's not even really integration, right? It's it's simply just you have you should have the right to right. read a book mm-hmm. without somebody threatening to burn it. And right. learn about other cultures and have right. those all represented, have all those right. voices at the table. Um, we talked about this in Angels of America last year, and it strikes me that that's true here too. Personal is political, political is personal. So while I think Emily doesn't make any huge political changes happen, mm-hmm. she makes a whole bunch of little personal changes happen in the story. Like mm-hmm. Tyler mentioned, Thomas, um, there's an act of kindness, which we won't give away toward the villain sure. at the end. Um, I think she's even responsible on some level for the um, change in one of my characters, who's this old Southern representative who just recognizes the times they are a change in, and sure. we need to go with it. He becomes a Bob Dylan fan. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, just yeah. like that. Totally. Yeah. Like, yeah. like you know, six years before <laughs> Bob Dylan even occurred. Wait till you see the dance number we put <laughs> so what is um, you know band band uh, book week and band book month uh, is a thing and uh, that's that's happens to coincide with this play um, and you know one of our partners the Heights Library uh, system is um, is going to do some talkbacks with us and, and in fact next episode we'll talk to Nancy Levin who's the um, the executive director of the libraries and uh, she's been gracious enough to agree to, to come and talk to Tyler and, and, and I I don't know if she knows what she's in for but it'll be fun um, but what you know why is it important that we don't ban books why is that an important thing you know I remember first like the first time I I encountered this idea was through a librarian at an elementary school I went to, and they had a display about books that had been banned: *To Kill a Mockingbird*, *Catcher in the Rye*. You know, these books were here, and they then and and she said, you know, these were banned books, and this is you know banned books week, and we're looking at Fahrenheit 451, and we're looking at you know these books. Why you know why should why is it that why is it that our society you think has to keep confronting this idea about banning books, and and why is that important? Uh, you know, I think it's, I've, I've several thoughts about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one is a very shallow thought, which is, uh, you know, the way, let me, uh, books nowadays, I don't think are as important maybe as they were 20, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, because we have so much other modes of media and mm-hmm. other ways of getting information. Mm-hmm. But I think when you look at the books that were banned back then, um, and then the ones, like you mentioned, Fahrenheit 451, I think you have to look at the overriding theme that connects them all, which is questioning the establishment, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, I think if you look at who wants to ban books and why they want to ban books, Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly why you should not, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Sure. Um, if the government is saying we shouldn't be allowing kids to read this book because it provides too much power for them. Mm-hmm. Um, or in the case of this play, we don't need to learn about other cultures. Uh, you know, I think we get a pretty good sense of the character that Higgins is when he has this sure. argument, right? And I think those are exactly why you should not ban them. Because, and, and as only read talks about in the play, we should at least have the availability to learn about different cultures. No matter if we in the argument she uses about Eskimos in the play, even though I may never be able to build an igloo in Alabama, right? It's okay to know that igloos exist (laughs) even if it's across the world. Sure. I think the best argument for me against um, 
censorship has less to do with the books and, and more to do with people. And what I mean by that is there are books that are probably like need to be burned, not because they're offensive or have bad ideas, but just because they're poorly written and, yeah, offen- are, and offensive to are, taste. People are cold and need to like, right. make, a yeah, fire. make a fire. But I, I think the problem with censorship is when we, when we, um, when we start censoring things, we cheat people of the opportunity to learn discernment. And I think I think what we need to be doing is raising up young people and adolescents and adults who know how to engage with all sorts of cultural messages, books, movies, music, and then wisely discern is what I'm hearing true or false, is what I'm hearing um, uh, sincere and authentic, or is it fake? Um, mm-hmm. And I think Unfortunately, we're raising up a lot of people in many respects that don't know how to discern, that just accept what's thrown at them, kind of automatons Mm -hmm. almost. Mm -hmm. And especially in this day and age where um, sources that were once reliable Mm -hmm. and we could say these are truthful, you're teaching people, you're raising up people who don't have tools for navigating that at all. So Mm -hmm. I think when we start censoring things, we rob people of one of the major arenas to learn how to read, think, mm-hmm. ask questions, understand for yourself. Mm-hmm. I think there might even be the residual effect of uh, inhibiting people's expression. Uh, you know, if there's if there's censorship out there, then you're you're closing pathways for people to express themselves mm-hmm. and new ideas to mm-hmm. be formulated. Mm-hmm. And I think there there should always be room for new ideas. I think mm-hmm. once the, once humans. Uh, stop coming up with new ideas we're really screwed <laughs> mm-hmm. one final question before we wrap it up so the idea of censorship now like you were talking about media and how we have so many different forms of media and to be honest with you I read probably half of my books on my phone or on my tablet mm-hmm. and, you know and half of my books on paper still because mm-hmm. I think I'm just maybe just old school that way sure. I don't know but I mean we were all yeah, kind of of, a, of, an, of an era where we grew up with books mm-hmm. and now there are generations that, that don't necessarily grow up with books there are generations a lot like uh, the Heights Performing Arts Camp um, you know kids that we, we worked with in the summer that are going into 6th grade you know 6th and 7th grade and, and a lot of them they're interaction at school is not even uh, writing anymore by hand it's all done on a computer it's all done on a screen mm-hmm. all of that media is electronic for them do you think that talking about banning books, do you think that it, it translates over to the, the larger idea of censorship? Or do you think that that becomes just a very limited conversation to people that experienced a time when pretty much 90% of our information was, was through print media, was through, you know, was through books, Right. I mean, you had television and radio, but right. I, I mean, the visual, the visual written word, right? We get a lot now through computers, and so that that medium has flooded the market in a way, right? There's so many choices, like you were talking about. How do you pick which one is is the one? You know, it used to be read the New York Times, read the Washington Post. Now you can't even necessarily, you know, it takes even more work to navigate those those periodicals online. So. Does it translate to younger generations? Does this does this conversation about books and censorship translate to a younger generation? Do you think that they understand that? I don't know. Uh, it's a good question. I I would think that if you were if you were being raised in the internet age, you know, the internet is sort of the it's a free for all. Like, there's yeah. no way to really censor the internet, right? 
I mean, well, Google, we're going to regulate Google well, right. searches. <laughs> but I mean, I don't think kids, uh, yeah, I don't know if they, and even our generation, uh, nothing was really ever being censored. No. Right? No. I mean, and Tipper I, Gore and records. Well, she oh, tried. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But she tried, but then there was Napster and that. Yeah, then rap started and all that. Yeah. I mean, um, file sharing kind of killed that. Yeah, then her husband invented Yeah, I just, yeah. yeah. And then I, I just think, uh, it's a good question. I, you know, I don't know. I don't think so. Because things are clearly being censored, right? Yeah. Things are always censored. Sure. It's, it's part yeah. of the editorial process. Yeah, I mean, I think they probably have a different name for it now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different monster wearing the same skin or something. I think it I think it translates in a different way. I, th- I'm going to go out on a limb. I, I have a hunch that maybe 10 years from now, books are going to have a potency again that mm-hmm. they don't have right now mm-hmm. and I, I gauge that on like my nieces and nephews who know how to swipe right. on something from the time they're like six or seven mm-hmm. months like right. crazy stuff right. who as they get older and they've been dealing with a screen you know either their dad's laptop or their mom's phone and then they start actually discovering books and being read to five six seven that there's something really mm-hmm. interesting and tactile that 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 is engaging to them mm-hmm. I think I think that's dependent on adults putting books in their lives, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I think the pendulum's going to swing back, where where mm. the screens and technologies is going to become so like I'm numb to it because I see it all the time. That mm-hmm. all of a sudden, like this weird thing sitting up on the shelf that has pages mm-hmm. and you can turn and it makes a sound. It has an odor to it, and it has an odor to it and a tactile. So the hipsters of the future won't collect records; they'll collect books. <laughs> I, I, collect I mean, records. I wonder. I got the 1988 edition of Funkin' Wagnalls, buddy. <laughs> I wonder. That's you know, it's encyclopedia. That's the same, that's the same argument home. I make uh, for theater, right? Like everyone says, oh, in the internet age, theater is dead. Well, no, I think theater is more important now than ever because it's the only real live source of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even when you go see a, a live band, a lot of times they're not even really doing the work, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, but here is the only time you can actually see human beings in front of you, yeah. uh, and and you know, performing and saying words and talking mm-hmm. out loud, uh, and you can actually touch them. And I think, yeah, I think Craig's right. I think books will probably have that same sort of effect uh, not very long from now. Well, there's something transactional. There's something transactional about theater, too, right? I, as the audience, do something, and that can condition yeah. what you, as an actor, do. And mm-hmm. then you do something, and that conditions my response, mm-hmm. which is which is similar to, I mean, I, I, I'm, it's interesting to, to, for, you, for me to hear you say that you do tons of your books on Kindle. I have never read anything yet on Kindle because the tactile kind of transactional experience with an actual book where mm-hmm. I can write things in it and dog ear and mm-hmm. circle things mm-hmm. and like that it that it's just weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's such a strange thing. It's it's definitely evolving. So we'll see what happens and we'll see what happens with this show. You guys open September seventh. So going into tech week. So yeah. big tech weekend coming up. September 7th, we're having opening weekend festivities. We are. We're going to have some booze. Yeah, we got some lightning lemonade and some uh, ginger ale and whiskey. Whiskey ginger ale, yeah. For our signature cocktails and uh, some beer and wine for opening weekend. So come out and and get your tickets. Mm. Uh, They're going soon. Uh, Artful, who's uh, another nonprofit in the building. They have artist studios here upstairs. They're going to be open at 6 o'clock on Friday of opening, so you can come early for a little happy hour after work. Come and get your drink. 
you know, walk around, relax a little bit, come and see the show about racism and uh, burning books and, you know I mean? <laughs> and rabbits. <laughs> and rabbits. It's, it's it really is a it really is a a, a very um, a very heartwarming and I, and I find it to be a very compelling new work um, for the theater and I think it's great that you guys have both you know decided to, to put this on stage for us because yeah we have a, we have a great cast so. yeah it's you got Anne McAvoy you got Cody Kilpatrick Skeel you got Joe Mylan. Uh, you got Eugene Sumlin, you got Adrian Jones, and Mr. Craig Joseph here. So uh, it's a really talented cast, talented director. Walter Boswell, award-winning set designer, is working on this. So you And you're know, doing the lighting. I, they might be lit. I don't know. We'll find <laughs> out if I remember how to do that or not. So uh, get your tickets. Come on out. And, uh, you know, we'll keep talking about this for the next couple weeks. Great. So, anything else, guys? My birthday is September 8th, Saturday night. Oh, look at that. If you come to the show that night, bring presents. And we'll sing happy birthday to Craig <laughs> during one of his scenes. Right. We'll just stop the show That'll and sing well. happy birthday. <laughs> All, All right. right. We'd like to thank our 2018 media sponsors, including Fog Corporate Properties, who you can find at fog.com. Fog builds Cleveland flexible spaces in all the right places. Also, for our listeners in Michigan, visit Discount Home Improvement for all your home renovation needs, specializing in kitchen and bath cabinets. Making quality products affordable for everyone since 1994. It's your money. Why pay more? Find them in Grand Rapids and Muskegon and online at DiscountMI.com. Wherever you listen to the Cleveland Stage podcast, please make sure you subscribe and rate the show. Thanks for listening. I'm Tyler. I'm Ian. And this has been the Cleveland Stage podcast. Remember, Tyler, all the world's a stage. Don't burn it. All right. Good All job. Right. Something like that. <laughs> it's our first, first one of the season. <laughs>